Welcome back to The Lover's Hole, where we're rereading the Aubrey Matron books of Patrick O'Brien. We're in episode 59, chapter 5 of The Far Side of the World. You're with Mike. And Ian. And Ian is just about to catch us up. Thanks, Ian. <laughs> I certainly am. Thank you, Mike. Well, last week, Stephen was getting worried about Diana's potential reaction to what is by now pretty old news, his apparent affair with Laura Fielding. Things got difficult aboard the surprise. The surprise became becalmed. They were running low on water. And meanwhile, Hollam's affair with Mrs. Horner, the gunner's wife, was being carefully watched by almost everyone. They're waiting for a coming explosion. And you might say that the explosion came as the feuding crew crossed the line, an electrical storm struck, took off the ship's bowsprit, and she's had to come in for repairs, Mike. So we're close in with the coast of Brazil. Right. That means this week, Stephen and Martin get their long-deferred chance to go botanizing. They're headed for the Brazilian jungle. Stephen's going to advance his uh, addictive personality. The surprises are going to be racing to catch this US frigate, the Norfolk. And there are complications along the way, a prize in view, and the horn to get around. What, Mike, could possibly go wrong? What indeed. Yeah, quite the chapter coming up here. Yeah. And, you know, as you, as you mentioned, Ian, too, we left last week as we closed chapter four with this beautiful cinematic description of, of Stephen and Martin in the Brazilian jungle. And now we rejoin the surprise as she's carefully brought up inland, uh, up the river to Pinedo for repair. And, you know, this is that uh, Mr. Lopez and the pilot that uh, that Alan had known from a prior journey here. So Jack is delighted that Lopez and Alan, the master who he'd sent ahead, have already started the repairs and, and estimates they'll be done in three days. He's thrilled. He's got Moet and Pullings are out watching to make sure the Norfolk doesn't go by. And Stephen, you know, learning that it's only three days, knows that Martin's going to be pretty disappointed because Martin had his heart set on, you know, kind of seeing boa constrictors and jaguars, owl-faced apes, and and this whole collection of local beetles he's hoping to assemble. And in three days, he probably won't get to do that. Lopez is going to be introducing, Stephen tells Jack, introducing him to a Peruvian gentleman who's crossed the Andes. And so Stephen's very interested to hear about how things are going in the rest of Latin America and about this terrain and, and the botanizing thereof. And Jack asks Stephen not to keep Mr. Lopez up late because he wants them up with the dawn. There's not a moment to lose. You know, they don't want the Norfolk passing by while they're sitting there still. And we remember that, you know, all these Brazilian speakers, the Peruvian visitor is going to be a Spanish speaker. So, you know, Stephen's great company for him. That's right. And they have a great evening together, a bit of social time. Lopez excuses himself early in the evening so that the Peruvian visitor can just sit with Stephen. And they're surrounded by animals and they're talking about their journeys and about botanizing. We have domesticated marmosets and a toucan and parrots. And O'Brien writes even something hairy in the background that might have been a sloth or an anteater. We would love it if it was a sloth or an anteater right. um, or even a doormat. But that it farted from time to time, looking around censoriously on each occasion. And th th this is funny. I think um, O'Brien reserves farting as an activity for only his most highly favored animals. Like I'm remembering the horse that was being driven by Babington and uh, <laughs> Diana in, uh, in Post Captain. Now, some lovely vocabulary here as well. The Peruvian goes on and tells Stephen to use the mosquito netting because at the change of moon, the vampires do grow a little importunate. And Mike, we've got these two words here, censoriously and importunate. Censoriously means severely critical of others. And I guess that's how we all are when we turn and face the room, when we've had a little a little passing gas moment. Um, <laughs> importunate was a, is a, is a, was a big word in 1806. It meant persistent to the point of annoyance or intrusion. And as a parent, I'm sure I've never experienced that. Anyhow, we love the farting animal <laughs> and we love the importunate vocabulary um we learned that these vampires these importunate bats are watching from the rafters they prefer 
a sleeping prey. And the men, meanwhile, talk through the night about Bonaparte, about the liberation of Spain's colonies. It's going to be a subject dear to Stephen's heart mm. and concerns about the government in Buenos Aires. And by the way, Mike, this is, this is setting up an interest of Stephen's in the decolonization of South America that's going to run for many novels to come. And by the way, has a strong parallel with the, the life and doings of Thomas Cochrane. But we'll come back to that on another time. There's more important business at hand, which is the Peruvian gent introducing Stephen to coca leaves, crediting these leaves with saving his life getting across the Andes. And Stephen tries them and loves them. Oh, gosh. He says his mind glows. He finds increased mental and physical powers. And the, the book says, a state of remarkable well-being, no fatigue, no hunger, no perplexity of mind, but a power of apprehension and synthesis that I have rarely known before. And Mike, it makes us wonder, why why then have we not solved all the world's problems with this wonder drug? But seriously, you know, your heart sinks at the idea of Stephen adding cocaine <laughs> to the list of his already cumbersome addictions. Right. Yeah. It, Stephen's, you know, Stephen's description here, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm back in the 80s talking to somebody across a Xerox machine here. Right. No. <laughs> it's awful. Well, all hands at dawn are hard at work on the repairs, except for Pullings and Mowat, of course, and, and their crews, because they are off in the launch and the barge watching and gathering news about the Norfolk here. And so everybody there is giving the rigging, you know, while while they've got her in, you know, this complete yeah. overhaul. They are setting it up, uh, O'Brien tells us, in Bristol fashion. And the folks that couldn't help on the rigging are completing the ship's water. And here's here's another one. We just had those earlier 1800 words that you had just talked us through. And this is one, Bristol fashion, which kind of comes out of nowhere about 1810, spikes about 1820 when we had a lot of, of shipping there in Bristol and shipmaking and everything. So this ship shape in Bristol fashion, you know, a common term there. But then there's a big surge in 2012. And, and shame on me, I, I, I didn't dig deeper to find out where, how did this come back? I wonder if this became the period, you know, the language of period novels or something. I don't know. 2012. Oh, well, yeah. In that. I don't know. But Bristol fashion, back again. I don't think there was anything big going down in Bristol in 2012, but who knows? Maybe the listeners can tell us. Right. So this is all sounding pretty good so far. Uh, dis despite the, the setback of the losing the bowsprit, the ship is ashore, the hands are being put to work, getting things back straightened up, and Stephen and Martin are off botanizing. Off they go into the woods, past these beautifully described jungles and all this wildlife. And Stephen comes across this band of leaf carrying ants and as he's trying to count and quantify the strength of these leaf carrying ants poor old martin is bitten down to the bone by an owl-faced night ape hiding in a tree we'll we'll come to the owl-faced night ape in a minute but this is a pretty grave moment i'm pretty sure martin's been bitten by things before <laughs> seems to be his uh his jam stephen is afraid that this beast might have had rabies they, they said that the beast might have been mad mad means rabid and stephen's worried that if he's got rabies then he could perhaps fear for martin's life but martin on the other hand seems quite pleased to have been bitten he says not every man that can show a wound inflicted by an owl-faced night ape and mike this this owl-faced night ape is quite a beast tell us a bit more about that well, it was fascinating. So, uh, you know, you can you can use Wikipedia is is a great way to get here. And um, on hmssurprise.org forward slash night dash ape, you get a, a little link. For those of you who don't know about the gun room, you know, what a source of information that is. So, uh, you know, monkeys and pictures and everything else. This night ape is actually a monkey. So it, it, back in these days, apes and monkeys often used interchangeably here. And it's one of the only truly nocturnal monkeys. Interestingly, also one of the few that's pair bonded, or in other words, monogamous monkeys. You know, it kind of takes one mate ah. and goes on there. And a, you know, even more interestingly, one of the few where the childcare is done by the male. So, uh, and, and adding on how how wonderful this male is. You know, while the female, you know, is with the child for the short time that she's with the child primarily and, and you know, feeding the child. 
The male shares food with his lactating spouse, all of these very unusual behaviors. And I couldn't help scratch my head going, hmm, we've got Stephen and Diana, we've got Hollum and the Gunner and uh, Mrs. Horner and all this. And so, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, is this, is this why, you know, again, O'Brien has dropped in this particular species to bite Martin right down to the bone? And even Martin thinking about matrimony, as we talked about in, in a prior chapter here. So now I want to make oh, sure wow. we disambiguate this. This has nothing to do with Spider-Man's alter ego, the Night Monkey, in Spider-Man Far From Home 2019, even oh. though Far From Home and Far Side of the World sound awfully close to one another. That might be a fun rabbit hole to go down. Wow, Mike. Wow. The Night Monkey is Spider-Man's alter ego. That's a brilliant find. Huh. <laughs> Although probably not top of mind for a Patrick O'Brien back no. in 1983. <laughs> Still, one for the fantasy fans out there. As they run back to the ship to, to try and get care from Martin and this wound from this potentially rabid ape, they meet two members of the launch crew. They meet our old friends, Awkward Davis and Fat-Ass Jenks. You've you got to love somebody called Fat-Ass Jenks. It's a great name. Right. Pullings out at sea has spotted, guess who? The Norfolk going by under plain sail. <sighs> so in order to get back to Captain Aubrey as quickly as possible, he's dropped these two lumbering heavy sailors off in the jungle to lighten the launch as they make their way upriver without grounding. So these two guys are beating it upriver on foot. And Mowat also, we learned, had been unable to come up the river. And Mike, just at the moment when we're inshore and getting the bowsprit repaired, this seems to be the worst possible news. This is the one thing that Jack wanted to avoid, getting caught refitting even a minor refit as the norfolk sails by this seems to be the worst possible news it can't get any worse than this can it oh right right you know that uh, we we can't get uh, these small boats up and down the river without norfolk's gone by us right this has got to be the worst news <laughs> well Knowing that the Norfolk has gone by, Jack immediately shifts into high gear. And so everybody is working through meals. They get 10-minute breaks. They're working day and night. Jack kind of reaches into his own pocket, hires every carpenter he can get locally to the point where they're, they're kind of bumping into each other, turning around on the bowsprit there. And they now hope to sail instead of on Sunday's evening tide, on Friday's evening tide. And, you know, fascinatingly, this, you know, the world of superstition in the sailors here, you know, Stephen is very concerned because it's unlucky to sail on Friday. And, and Jack says, well, that doesn't apply here because on the one hand, they're not being commanded to sail on a Friday and it's, they're not voluntarily sailing on a Friday. And I thought, well, there, there's a great logical conundrum, right? <laughs> so, we, we, but in other words, it's like, all right, all right, we got to find a way to, uh, you know, get our, get our uh, ship's lawyer to uh, get us out of this superstition conundrum. And it's their best chance of catching the Norfolk because on that Friday is when the spring tide is going to be high and may well carry them down the river even faster than they came up. So uh, Moet and crew finally get their boat up the next morning, and now they're really accelerating repairs. Things are going very fast. They've got all their experienced men there. And with their help, uh, the ship is ready even sooner than expected. And so Jack accepts Lopez's you know, delightful invitation to celebrate because they've got some time between the finishing of repairs and heading down that evening to catch that evening tide there. So dinner and wine coming up here. This again, seems like happy times. We know that all these people here are good company. They're all really well disposed towards Jack and Stephen. People are drinking and celebrating as Jack keeps watch on the time. The pilot, old friend of Lopez, the pilot is quite enthusiastic um, he's drinking, he's singing sea shanties, learned aboard American and English merchantmen, one of the rare uh, sort of explicit mentions for sea shanties in these books. And Jack hurries them along, even as the pilot is still asking for one more toast to St. Paul. He wants to catch the unusually high, fast-flowing river at this springtide, and the breeze is also in favour. It's going to blow them rapidly down the river. And as they prepare to leave, Martin and Stephen are watching howler monkeys in a tree, and wishing that this pilot, who's clearly quite well refreshed, right. could quieten down so that they can hear. The pilot, in full enthusiasm, takes the ship into the middle of the stream, continuing to loudly imitate wildlife. But we learn 
the ship was running surprisingly fast under topsails and jib when it came to a smooth but sudden dead halt on a sandbank. <laughs> Presumably, no pun intended, with the surprise running surprisingly fast. <laughs> and Mike, this cue what we all know has to happen at this point. Jack is out of the cabin. He sees how deep they are in the bank and he goes into emergency action mode and starts giving out the orders. Well, we've run up against this before, haven't we, Ian? Yeah, yeah, we have. I mean, it, we've had the Polycrest aground back in post-captain in this action at Cholier at the end of, uh, or at the climax of post-captain. We had the iceberg-damaged Leopard putting into Desolation Island for refit, and both of these were like super high jeopardy. These were both episodes when it's a challenge for Jack's resourcefulness and seamanship to save the day. So I think O'Brien knows that just by describing the ship running aground, we get the signal that this is a pretty bad situation. So um, as we get this news, we're, we're just kind of intensifying an already grave situation. And without too many spoilers, I think we can say that this isn't the last time in this book that Jack and his crew are going to have to improvise running repairs to save the fate of the mission and maybe the fate of the ship. And Mike, as, as I read this, I'm thinking it's been a pattern in this book for us to hark back to episodes from previous books. We harked back to HMS Surprise and the episode of Simple's Rocks and the Crossing of the Line. We're harking back to episodes, as we said, in uh, Desolation Island and, uh, and in Post Captain. And it's like we're getting the Patrick O'Brien greatest hits. And I'm just wondering whether Peter Weir and the folks that wrote the screenplay for the movie might have been thumbing through Far Side of the World thinking, okay, yeah, here is a book that's got it all. Even though this particular episode doesn't find its way into the movie, it might have played a part in them deciding to bring in Far Side of the World as the vehicle for translating into a movie. And we still in this book and in the movie we've got these themes of man versus nature just as important as man versus man and they're really helping to make their their, their storytelling really compelling yeah yeah for sure i, I mean this thing is and, and we're just kind of kicking off right here but it really I'm, I'm taking how some of this reads like an action you know scene reads like we're beating the quarters but we're not beating the quarters against the enemy we're beating against nature against all these obstacles and everybody having to pull together we keep coming back to that again and again it's fascinating seeing you know different ways in which the movie and the books kind of bring those actions to bear and being very very um even though they do it with different stories within this book they both do it in a very compelling way, and they do it in a way that brings out the best of, of, of some of what we love about this canon. Yeah, that's a great point. So uh, they cast the lead to look for deeper water on the sides. You know, Jack's sort of instructing them, thinking, you know, if it's deeper on the sides, perhaps we can just kind of slide her off, but they find one. And so they look behind her, and the report comes back. You know, O'Brien writes, by the Mark Twain, sir, said the quartermaster in a shocked voice, <laughs> and barely that. So I, I couldn't help but as, you know, as as a good American, and, and he's known so well, by the Mark Twain, you know, we, we've all, that brings up Samuel Clemens, who was himself a former riverboat pilot. And the Mark Twain actually, two fathoms, 12 feet, that's great for a Mississippi riverboat, flat bottom with the paddle wheel, but not great for a ship of the line or even one as small as a prize. <laughs> so not good news. And O'Brien goes on to tell us that you know, the stern is unusually low uh, in the water. The rudder probably is now unshipped. And Jack is immediately sending out the boats with anchors for them to try to you know, pull themselves off. And as he's doing this, he sees the pilot has slipped over the side into the little boat with his man, and they are paddling furiously to get away. So I think they realize what they've done, and they're getting the heck out of Dodge City, probably just as well. Um, Jack has the water started over the sides as the cables are let out, and they're paddling furiously into the wind against the tide to get these boats and anchors and cables out there, knowing that this tide is going to drop 30 feet and they had already in 10 minutes lost five inches. So they drop the anchor and then the kedge uh, to kind of anchor the anchor in place. 
but they do it in what O'Brien calls the first tolerable place. So as soon as we find a place, drop this down, knowing if we miss the tide, we're, we're done anyways. Everyone runs to the capstan and, and they start to pull it in. They're kind of getting it very taunt as the boats are coming back on board the surprise. And, you know, smaller men replacing larger men and Jack explicitly, you know, pushing Stephen out of the way saying, you know, I'm heavier. Let me have at that heave and rally. And you know, this is where for me, you know, again, it's like beating to quarters here as they're as they're hitting this capstan. Totally. It's very, very tense writing. We get it written out for a second by second in the text. Then the sound of the poles came faster. Click, 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 click. The cook cried, we're off. And some of those who had not found room at the bars began to cheer. But it was the anchors that were coming home. So all they're doing is pulling the anchors in now. Apart from settling a little deeper into the mud, the surprise had not moved. And by now, the tide had dropped two feet. Belay, said Jack, straightening from the bar. And hopefully undeterred, I think Jack's ordering pullings to find hard land on the near riverbank to set the cannons back down so they can float her at the next tide. But I think he's also got a bit of realism in his brain as he's thinking, or at the top of the next spring tide. Oh, God send us a right height of flood tomorrow. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Yep. We're with you, Jack. We're with you. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my gosh. And you know, here it is. It's the, you know, I've come all the way to the far side of the world to catch the Norfolk and now I'm aground up this river in Brazil as it's, you know, flying down, you know, running past us here. And and in classic O'Brien style, you know, we're, we're waiting. Okay, well what happens next? What do they do? What happens the next? What we get now is we're way ahead Stephen is writing to Diana, uh, talking about what's happened over the last two weeks, uh, about how, you know, sometimes she doesn't think much of Jack, but that he has to tell her that, you know, over these two weeks, Jack has, O'Brien writes, a certain heroic quality, a certain greatness of soul. Oh, man. So, you know, I, I think just like you pointed out earlier, this is it. Every time we recover from one of these near shipwrecks, one of these scenes, it's like, yes, this is... You know, this is heroic action here, this greatness. Yeah, of it is. And I guess one of the differences is that th- this time it doesn't represent big redemption for Jack. I think he was already in pretty good shape and he was already you know, cleanly our hero. Um, but it's great that Stephen still sees this in his friend and still acknowledges it. And I think Jack's fears really did come true. After the uh, drunken pilot had run the ship so solidly aground on the sandbank, they had to wait for the next change of the moon to get the surprise off as the Norfolk had added 200 miles a day to her lead. That's a big old one, 200 miles from noon to noon. And Jack, we learned, never cursed, hardly ever rebuked anyone. And this coolness, this real controlled composure shocked the men. All of them, including Stephen and Martin, worked extra hard. The text says, as meek as schoolboys under Jack's eye. And after the unskilled work was done, Stephen and Martin, who's you know, arms and legs were no longer immediately useful, got to go back ashore and botanize, seeing lots of curious beetles, having a boa constrictor drop on them from the trees. Martin is such an unlucky soul when it comes to encounters with wildlife. He's trying to examine this snake as Stephen tries to keep them from being killed like Lyocon. And Lyocon is a Trojan priest who was killed along with his sons by two sea serpents after warning the Trojans against the wooden horse. Timeo danos et dona ferentes. I fear Greeks even bearing gifts. I'm just showing off there that I can remember the quote. Well done, sir. <laughs> they were, we, we're going back <laughs> to the War of the Iliad, which we've been talking about in this book. But Homer, in fact, never mentions him. However, um, Virgil's Aeneid is a classic that tells a version of this story of the Trojan horse. Gosh. Well, you know, it's Stephen, he's writing all this about Jack. And then and then we <laughs> we get our, our little uh enthusiastic addict who goes on to tell Diana about his cocoa leaves. Um and, and hoping yeah. that they may help him throw off this laudanum, which he says, you know, as you might remember, dear, you know, from time to time helps me go to sleep, which we remember he promised Diana he was not gonna take anymore. And he even right. sent a few leaves in the letter for her to try out. Do not try this at home, ladies and gentlemen. This is no longer done. But uh, so Jack has, excuse me, Stephen has sent Diana some cocoa leaves. And then he goes on to explain that they got free at the next high tide, but they lost an anchor and they spent so much time trying to find it 
that then they had to wait for the next high tide to be guided downriver, and that Mr. Lopez, not the pilot this time, has just arrived to guide them, uh, and and is also going to post Stephen's letter. And it's interesting um, that Stephen says to himself, you know, he's written this, that, that he's going to post this letter. And he says, or is he? And then Stephen rereads the letter, and O'Brien writes, the tone was wrong, perhaps offensively wrong. It assumed that there was no difficulty between them, and the awareness that this assumption was unwarranted gave the letter a falseness, a grating artificiality. He slowly crushed the paper in his hand as he stared out over the river at the elegant little ship swimming there in the fairway well, this side of the wicked island. But then, as he saw the boat pull away from her side, the boat that was to carry him aboard, with no more land perhaps until the far Pacific, he smoothed it out again and wrote, The deer knows when it will reach you, but early or late, it brings my love. Whew. So, boy, this this more introspective Stephen really kind of examining himself and really still worried about this relationship and kind of wanting to say, even though... You know, there's this continuing falseness that he thinks about in himself and what he has to tell things that, that aren't the whole truth and everything. He still does not want to lose Diana's affection and wants to tell her how much he loves her. Yeah. And even though he's lacking a bit of self-knowledge about the, the, the drugs and the addictions, I think <laughs> it's great that he could be true to his, you know, his, his need, his want to, 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 to preserve the relationship with Diana. So good for him. Well, if, if Stephen's in the mood for introspection, perhaps we're in the mood for introspection. Maybe now is a good time for a quick introspection break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Hopefully we've all done a bit of introspection there over the break, reached out to tell the ones that we love that we love them. And now we're ready to rejoin the surprise. Ian, where is she now? Well, surprise is 16 days sailing behind the Norfolk, which doesn't sound like very much, but it's 2000 miles of deficit. Wow. Um, Jack knows that he can't push her too hard because once they get round into the Southern Pacific, there's nowhere to refit. So he's actually grateful that he has Pullings and Moat with him so that they can join him in driving the ship. It says night and day with equal determination and energy. They're really glad, I think, to be closer to this blue water sailing, to be clear of the land, um, to be working to keep the ship looking good. But the wind is not any kinder to them. And this raises a problem in the mind of the crew. We learn many a wry look did Hollum's back receive the back of a wind-eating Jonah for all his successful cruising in the gunner's private waters. So, Mike, that, that we are often moving again, but all is still not well in the family of the surprise. No, no, no. And, and Jack has a bit of a remedy for that um, here. He's, you know, he's keeping the surprises very busy. You know, as, as you said, they're keeping up the ship, they're practicing gunnery. And O'Brien tells us, there were two chief reasons for this steady preparation. The first was that Jack Aubrey thoroughly enjoyed life. He was a cheerful, sanguine disposition. His liver and lights were in capital order. And unless the world was treating him very roughly indeed, as it did from time to time, he generally woke up feeling pleased and filled with a lively expectation of enjoying the day. Since yeah. he took so much pleasure in life, therefore, he meant to go on living as long as ever he could. Ah, Jack, I hear you. I'm, I'm joining with you. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> yeah. And it appeared to him that the best way of ensuring this in a naval action was to fire three broadsides for his enemies, too, and to fire them deadly straight. So Jack is thinking, I like life. I want to keep alive. So my, <laughs> my, my crew's got to be really great gutters. And the second reason, writes O'Brien, closely allied to the first, was that his idea of a crack ship was one with a strong, highly skilled crew that could outmaneuver and outshoot their opponent, a taut but happy ship, an efficient man of war. In short, 
a ship that was likely to win at any reasonable odds. So loved this description from O'Brien. It's great, isn't it? it? It gets back into the heart of what makes Jack Aubrey tick. And he's reminding us, this is a bit of a Patrick O'Brien trope, this phrase, a taut but happy ship. But this we've come to know is what Jack really, really prizes. And being on the way to getting a happy crew and being out in the ocean doing blue water sailing feels good for Jack. They get into this regular cadence of the day that O'Brien loves to describe to us. The ship is in good shape. The young gentlemen are well-educated. Martin is classifying all his coleoptera, all of his beetles. And Stephen is helping, but also attending to the sick bay. He's running on deck from time to time to spot birds and whales, so everything seems to be right in the world. But a couple of things going on in the background, in the context of this family. Stephen hears about and starts to become tired of his assistant Higgins extracting illicit fees from patients and, as Stephen would say, practicing upon them, deceiving them. So he, Stephen, decides to care for all the patients himself. He restricts Higgins, at long last, about time, Stephen, restricts Higgins to just doing his teeth-pulling stuff, at least officially. And the second thing that's brewing aboard ship is that Mrs. Horner comes to see Stephen. She's pregnant she knows that Stephen knows it could not be by her husband because he's impotent with her. And she's afraid that Horner will kill her when he finds out. And Mike, this is a really grim moment for Stephen. He's, he's asked to help her to do away with the child. He absolutely will not do with that. We've heard him deal with that kind of request for, um, in, in the past. But he does feel her distress and her disappointment. He tells her, in, by way of reassurance, that one in ten pregnancies end in miscarriage and tells her to come and see him every week. And after she leaves, Stephen thinks that the gunner might well kill her when he sees him dark, angry, and dangerous on deck. And Mike, this is, this is really grim, really dark, but it's juxtaposed with all of this otherwise kind of lightness of mood amongst Jack and some of the crew. And it's juxtaposed as well with the idea a couple of moments ago about Stephen and Diana's marriage being at risk. And I think maybe this terrible situation between the Horners and Hollam at least offers the perspective that for Stephen and Diana, one thing to hold on to is that they could be much worse. (laughs) Somebody could be about to get killed. And Mike, this also comes after the spectacle of this very destructive jealousy that we saw between Charles and Laura Fielding. And maybe we're being invited to see jealousy as almost as destructive a force as, as infidelity, as adultery. Yeah. And, and, and you know, and how these, you know, the, the horns of the dilemma, these two horns, jealousy and infidelity, oh, you know, sometimes yeah. they, boy, they come together with this such an incredibly destructive potential. Ah, the green monster. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess in Stephen's case, the, the, the good news that he can know that Diana doesn't know is that Stephen's infidelity is only only apparent. It's only only right. rumoured. It's a, It appears by accident or circumstances. The jealousy, though, I think is potentially real, and that's a worry for Stephen. Yeah, the, the jealousy is real and, and, and the passion to act rashly. Yeah. And that's yeah. why I think, you know, it's, that's got my fingers on the pulse of, of my own pulse going, oh, Diana, please don't, please don't, please don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, well... Pullings has has been kind of busy. They've they've been talking to other ships as they've stopped them. And and Pullings brings Stephen up to date to tell him that they've learned from these other ships that the Norfolk has not stopped and, and in fact, is now moving even faster. And that if she doesn't put into port somewhere before the horn, they're absolutely going to have to follow her around. Uh, And then Pullings wonders if they have to follow her around, how they would ever find her. Because here on, on the Atlantic side, there are shipping lanes. They can kind of cruise. Everybody's staying to about the same path here. But once she gets around the Horn, she's off hunting whalers, and they're spread far to the south and west. So there's really no way of knowing where she might go here. Um, and there's, at this point now, no port that they can safely pull into to get word of her. So uh, Pullings says it would call for most uncommon luck and luck is what we have not had much of this goddamn voyage. So Pullings, I think a bit down here, perhaps some of the rest of the crew a little bit down that after all they've done to get the Norfolk and to be in a great position, 
it's starting to look a little more hopeless here. Yeah. And as Pullings invokes luck, <laughs> we yeah. all kind of naturally turn, I think, to Jack. Let's think about lucky Jack. How's he doing? And as they go for weeks on end, not seeing any ships, Jack comes back to his famous recurring dream, this dream that we've heard about many times in previous books of him riding a horse that keeps shrinking until everyone's looking at him with contempt as he rides, dragging his feet along on the ground. So Jack's luck and his good spirits are starting to fade, I think. The weather, too, is turning cooler as they head south. And meanwhile, Jack is pleased that the little midshipmen, the squeakers, are making good progress in their Latin and their Greek. They're taking noon observations. They're fixing the ship's position. He invites these midshipmen to eat with him every day. And we think that maybe Jack's doing for the youngsters what, in hindsight, he wishes had been done for him at their age with the care and the education and the bringing them on. Um, they're running low now, though, on private stores that everyone's eating ship stores. Everyone's eating salt beef and hard tack. Right. Martin, though, stays on as a as their sort of habitual dinner guest. And uh, from time to time, he's regaling Jack with stories about what he's seen, like seeing his first jackass penguin and still managing to be complimentary about the excellent salt pork. He right. was nice about the bloody goose pie, and he's being nice as well and diplomatic about the salt pork that he's having to eat. Right. You know, it, it is fascinating to see, you know, the things, the little things that Jack is taking pleasure in, even as we know from Pullings and others that this is not going the way they want it. They're finding little things to take pleasure in. Martin and Stephen, they keep going further and further south. So it's getting cooler and cooler. The wildlife is changing. The weather's changing. The seas are changing. And Stephen and Martin are getting up early and earlier. They don't want to miss anything. And, and Calumny runs down early one morning and reports excitedly that there's in Calumny's words, a huge, great, enormous whale alongside. And, <laughs> and they run up. And sure enough, it is a big sperm whale. It's keeping up with the ship, just coming right along the side of it. A biscuits throw away, O'Brien tells us. And it's just blowing and breathing and blowing. And Alan calls it an 80-barrel whale, maybe 90. So this is one of the ones that they would love to have caught. And, you know, Stephen's kind of wondering, you know, it's just staying right there with the ship like that and says it's probably old, deaf, perhaps even blind. And and they're yeah. just, you know, you're looking at this beautiful whale that, you know, regarding it and some Marine officer fires a gun at it and uh, oh. the whale dives. And Stephen turns completely away because he doesn't want to see this, you know, kind of this murderous look on his face that he has for this Marine officer. But just when that scene might have gotten a little more tense, Mrs. Lamb, the carpenter's wife, comes running up looking for Stephen and asks him to please take a look at Mrs. Horner. Stephen goes down. Mrs. Horner, the gunner's wife, is doubled up in her cot. And, and the gunner is distraught. He's in the corner. And Stephen realizes that despite his unwillingness, that she has obviously found someone who's given her an abortion. Um, and he uh -huh. is he's really taken aback. And he says, I, you know, I need light and I need air and I need hot water. So everybody except Mrs. Lamb get out of here. And Mrs. Lamb, he realizes, also knows what's happened. So he's kind of you know, recruited her as a little ally here to help him with Mrs. Horner. Now, Stephen heads out to grab something from his medicine chest, and he runs into Higgins and realizes that this is the guy who has done this. And he tells Higgins that if she dies, if Stephen can't save her, he will see that Higgins hangs for this. Higgins sees what O'Brien calls the reptilian ferocity in Stephen's eyes. We've heard that before. And you know, while he's usually pretty smart mouth, he doesn't say a word here. He just bows his head. Oh, I don't know about you. I'm, I'm right there. I feel yeah. real rage against this Higgins guy. You can kind of see where it's come from, but I, I, Stephen's absolutely justified in this threat to hang him. He calls him a rash, wicked, bungling, ignorant, murderous fool, right. which is a, a Stephen Maturin adjective stack that's absolutely earned here. Ah. <sighs> And it's almost sort of sad and a little bit heartbreaking and a little bit vulnerable the way the, the gunner comes and asks, what's the trouble? What's the nature of the disease? And it's really, really hard to, to kind of read this. As Stephen has to go into this mode of politely deceiving Horner about what's going on, he says, it is a female disorder. It's not uncommon, but it is bad. And his wife may or may not recover from the fever. 
hopefully he says her youth because she's only 19 will save her and again this really touching vulnerability of this really sort of angry and disturbed guy asks if the reason is his problem his impotence and Stephen reassures him that it's not and he wonders if there's actually an attachment there the next morning then when the shock has worn off he sees that the gunner is only angry at the world and angry at his wife for getting sick the text says it did not surprise him very much in the course of his professional career by land, he had seen many and many a husband and even some lovers angry at a woman's sickness, impatient, full of blame, quite devoid of pity and angry that it should be expected of them. Oh, my God. That's a very sad commentary on the male gender. It, it, it is. And, you know, it's, it's funny because I observe back in my own life how, you know, sometimes I've been here a little bit. And for me, well... You know, this is this is not a therapy session, but <laughs> actually, for for me, it's like I, I'm a little bit afraid when my wife is sick because, like, she, you know, this is this is the woman who kind of keeps the world together, and I think sometimes that fear gets covered over with anger as well. Yeah. So you're right, a sad commentary on our sex sometimes when we're just that you know knuckle dragging neanderthals that we are and sometimes when it's really that we're afraid or that it is the attachment that stephen wonders about earlier and so this chapter is doing a nice job of reminding us to stay close to those we love right definitely oh, definitely i have a feeling though that we haven't heard the last of mr horner's feelings about his wife's sickness and her situation meanwhile at dawn a sail is sighted and the hands make sail immediately aboard the surprise as they try to identify this new sail there's no crow's nest so this can't be a whaler that they've come across um she wears she turns with the wind behind her and she's going large she's dry she's sailing downwind it could be the norfolk but word comes back that she's only a brig only two masts which means she can't be the norfolk and Jack assumes that she is the packet to Danai, but he can't understand why she's not responding to the private signal. And Mike, we heard earlier on that Stephen is on the lookout for an agent called Cunningham who's meant to be sailing aboard this packet right. with some stuff that he knows about, but also some stuff that Cunningham doesn't know about. So Jack's mystified as to why this packet's not responding to the private signal, seems to be hauling her wind now to get the weather gauge and is making obscure signals from time to time and packing on sail. And all of these signals are um, ruses and warlike maneuverings that Jack recognizes of old, I think. Um, she signals her number correctly, um, signals that she's carrying dispatches, which means that she can't stop, which is a plausible um, signal for a, a, a packet ship to give in the situation but she'd still never made that private signal clearly and jack signals her to repeat the private signal she hauls it up it appears to jam and come down again before it can be read and again this is smoke and mirror material that jack knows very well from his own practice of it he's pretty sure then that the packet has been taken and is in enemy hands he says to pullings that they're going to take her and that pullings is going to take her home and that's independent command for Captain Pullings, and Pullings is delighted, I think. Yeah, he, he really is. You know, he says that, you know, while, you know, while it wouldn't be, like, there wouldn't be an action because this thing's not big enough to really fight the surprise, so there wouldn't be the glory of an action. Still, recapturing uh, a valuable prize would be great, Pullings being the one to bring her back home. And he even mentions, Pullings says that, you know, he'd also be seen as lucky, and that really helps with promotion. So I, I love how this plays throughout the naval hierarchy here as yeah. well. Well, the surprises, as we know, always love a chase. And, and O'Brien tells us the piratical side of their character was in full, intensely eager play. And they won it not only because it's a chase, but because they overheard Jack say that Pullings would take her home. And they quite like Pullings. So everybody is absolutely at top form. And and Jack called, you know, he says, you know, why don't you ask the doctor to come up? Because, you know, he might like to see this chase. He'd ask earlier. And, and Stephen had earlier said that he would not come up to enjoy himself in the cold driving wind, rain and sleet unless it's a direct order. And I think Jack had said earlier that, 
you know, he, he believed that when Pullings went to get him, Pullings was not reporting all of the Stephen's mutinous language <laughs> on purpose. But now he does order him to come up, and and they catch the packet despite her five mile head start. So obviously, phenomenal sailing on the part of the prizes, and the American officer and the prize crew that are with her are coming across now. And there's this really nice meeting here. Jack and the captain compliment each other. Jack allows him to keep the sword. The captain says, you know, I'm not sure whether, and now that I think about it, that the person who who's, has charge of the prize may have been a lieutenant, may have been a captain. But this, this young American, you know, is saying that, you know, I'm glad to have somebody as well known as you to have, have caught me here. And that perhaps if they had not lost some canvas south of the horn, they, they might have gotten away. So... Pullings brings her close by the surprise. Uh, they exchange, they bring over the American prisoners. They bring over the former crew of the packet. And, you know, they've, they've done a little bit of interrogation now. And they don't know, since they were kind of on this side of the horn, whether the Norfolk is in the Pacific yet. But they do know that on her way to the Pacific, she's already taken two homebound whalers one of which, which had been out three years and was completely, you know, had had filled everything she had to fill with oil going back to England. So oh. the Norfolk is definitely doing some damage. We know that now. Yeah. <sighs> so Stephen asks Jack if there had been any treasure found aboard the packet and wonders whether it would be safer with them or going home with pullings. And Jack says that if there were two chests of gold, then they're already gone. And Stephen says that there may be more. Jack says, well, maybe Tom could have had problems with the privateers, so maybe the if there are papers hidden, um, they might be safer with them, but safer, safer staying aboard the surprise. So Jack and Stephen go across. And Stephen didn't quite like the way he'd been told about the papers on the Danai, and he thought about what Sir Joseph Blaine had said about the troubled atmosphere in London. So he suspects and he thinks that the papers are not there. Jack, however, shows him that he's been looking on the wrong side of the ship. Stephen forgets (laughs) that when you're facing aft, starboard is now on your left hand. Following the instructions, they find this concealment. A large chest drops out and it cracks open, filled with banknotes. And bless him. You know, in earlier on in their career, Jack would have gone, wait, wait, what? Hold on, money? Where, where's all this coming from? But Jack just knows now that this is part of Stephen's other life as an intelligence agent, and he's used to this kind of thing. Stephen had his pockets stuffed with cash in the Mauritius command, and I think for Jack, this is just more of the same. Right. Stephen seals the cask back up, gives Jack a receipt, and asks him to watch over it in case something should happen to him. Jack, while they're having this little side conversation, asks after the gunner's wife because he wants to help. And Stephen says that Mrs. Horner may not live. He tells Jack that he has to write a letter for Pullings to carry back and will return to, in air quotes, help Jack with the mail from the Danai. He knows Jack is going to hesitate to open and read it, despite the fact that it might contain intelligence. So... There's more to learn, though, as we dig into the papers that were on the uh, on board the packet. There's one letter from an officer called Caleb Gill describing all of the Norfolk's intended movements until the Galapagos archipelago. Just a few paragraphs ago, Mike, Thomas Pullings had said we'd have to be lucky. But guess what? They've got this intelligence about the movements of the Norfolk. Right. Jack feels sure now that with what he's learned about her sailing qualities and with this intelligence, they can catch her before then, perhaps even at Juan Fernandez Island. And this is all sounding great. The future is unfolding before Jack. But Stephen says he would be pleased, but he's worried about two of his patients. One is the gunner's wife, and the other is our old friend Joe Place, who's fallen and fractured his skull. Yeah. So we've got, you know, it's it's funny, as you were saying earlier, Ian, this is kind of a book of, of O'Brien's greatest hits. And, and we've been reminded yeah. earlier about Stephen's, you know, skull surgery uh, way back early on the Sophie. And now here we are. We're kind of replaying this scene again. And Stephen asked Martin to help him trepan the the place's skull. And Martin had wanted to go visit the gunner's wife. And Stephen said, you know know what? Here, I've got this important operation. Help me with this. And when she gets a little better, you can go see her. And the surprises are all delighted to watch again. You know, they've always told everybody about Stephen's skill at this. And now they're all knowing they'll all have another story to tell for the rest of their lives here. So once again... It goes well. 
Um, we don't get a lot of detail here. We kind of rejoin them as Martin is sewing the scalp back on. We know Martin's very, very well skilled in, in stitches here. And Jack and Bonded, O'Brien reports, appear to have gone pale during the operation. Everybody else loves it. But O'Brien says about everybody else's loving it, it's the last gratification they had for a very long while. And in some case, the last they ever had Ooh. in some cases. Yeah. Wow. So this is boy, I'll tell you, he's been throwing down these little ominous things, but that one's, that one's pretty much a, you know, a, a bold italics and underscore, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty on the nose. And, and by the way, this is, this is a, a, a lemony fresh Russell Crowe alert. This uh, trepanning of the skull absolutely replayed um, in the movie to complete with really great gruesome sound effects as Stephen Maturin uses the trepanning tool on Joe Place's skull. So meanwhile, we're getting into the Southern Ocean and that means bad weather. And we learn that a gale blows for three nights and two days. We have rain, sleet. We have the deck awash. We have men unable to walk without lifelines, but they're still making good time due south. Alan, the master and Jack are working with conflicting maps as they try and work out their position. They're trying to figure out the best way to proceed. Jack goes on Stephen's rounds along with him, looking at the state of the casualties. They've got men who were injured in the storm. Stephen says that it was from not holding on and not stopping their grog two hours before going on deck. A little fling at the what he sees as the pernicious habit of grog drinking in the Navy. While we're talking about casualties then, Jack asks about Mrs. Horner. Stephen says, like he said before, that her youth may pull her through. But Jack thought differently when he saw her grey face. It says, immense, dark-circled eyes showing the marks of death. Jack wishes her well and asks her to get better for the sake of the youngsters and realises he's shouting with his outside voice. He felt much happier, it says, in the sick bay, where he knew exactly what to say to each man and boy. The boy being one of his youngsters, John Nesbitt, with a broken collarbone, and in his relief, he said to Place, well, Place, at least some good may come out of this. At least no one will be able to say poor old Place is down to his last shilling. How do you make that out, sir? Asked Place, closing one eye and smiling in anticipation because he knows the captain's level of wit and he can read this one coming a mile off. Why? Because there are three of them screwed to your head. Ha 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 ha, said his captain. You are not unlike Shakespeare, observed Stephen as they walked back to the cabin. And... Jackson, not, not going to bite at this at all. He says, so I'm often told by those who read my letters and dispatches. But what <laughs> makes you say so at this particular moment? <laughs> because, says Stephen, his clowns make quips of that bludgeoning, knock-me-down nature. So, classic <laughs> Aubrey, Aubrey dad humor here. And Mike, there's a little tiny, I think for me, a little tiny reach out to the film. Um, in the movie, we have Jack visiting the sick bay to see Lord Blakeney, who's got his terribly injured arm, who's pale and sickly, right. and we wonder if he's close to death. And I've got a real strong recollection of Russell Crowe's superbly acted awkwardness and discomfiture as he's faced with this boy who's really badly injured and whose life is in danger. And I'm sort of reminded of that as we read about the difference between him chatting away to his shipmate Joe Place versus him looking at the deathly gray face of Mrs. Horner. Well spotted. Well spotted. Well, Jack you know, invites Stephen to play music that night and, and they discuss the American uh, who's come aboard. Actually, these two young Americans, one of whom is related to Captain Lawrence, who treated Jack and Stephen yeah. so well in Boston, who later captured Moet and was so good to him and came to tell Jack about him. And, and Jack intends to take very good care of, of this young American related to Lawrence and his midshipman who's coming with him. And he's invited them to eat in his cabin. And so he asks Stephen if they can forego their toasted cheese that night, since they're all down to ship's rations, that toasted cheese is the last little thing he has, you know, that's a little special and he wants to save it for dinner with the Americans. Thank you, Jack. That's very kind of you. And yeah, they're playing time. away and Stephen now falls asleep while he's playing. So I think between the laudanum and the cocoa leaves and, and all this, uh, you know, work in the sick bay, Stephen is now exhausted you know, he, he, Jack probably gets him up. Stephen heads to bed and Jack heads up on deck wearing a sweater that Sophie made for him. And I love O'Brien's description. O'Brien says it's still full of warmth and love 
though somewhat mangled by Brazilian mice. And he's wearing it under this great jacket and sweater. But he finds when he gets up there that they've traveled far faster than he expected, much faster than they had on their dead reckoning. And he does not want to run up against Staten Island, which should be somewhere around there. So they start all these soundings, uh, which are continue when Mr. Allen comes up to kind of take his watch. And Jack stays until he's sure that they are sailing away from this lee shore and then heads back to bed, but comes right back at dawn and realizes that the same way that Jack kind of stayed on for longer, the master has, has stayed on as well and has not gone to bed. Uh, and so together, they then, given the way the seas are now, the winds are now, they start plotting the way around the horn because right at this moment, They've got a nice, favorable wind that's come up. Yeah. And I'm I'm sure that the Americans aboard ship are not confused at all by the fact that this particular Staten Island is down in the southern extremity of South America <laughs> and not one of the five boroughs of New York City. But anyway, that's another whole other thing. Although I'm sure there are real estate agents who have played upon that difference. <laughs> yes. Oh, outer boroughs, you don't know. Outer boroughs, steer clear of the outer boroughs. Stay, stay with Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> ah. So the, the dinner's a little bit more constrained. The young Americans are more different than Jack had expected. So it's it's not one of those completely companionable dinners like I think he remembers um, in situations like when he was, uh, he was with the Americans back in Fortune of War. So he walks the deck afterwards and he sees the horn in sight. Not so much land as the world's grim end a tall blackness on the rim of the sea that continually flashed white as the rollers broke at its foot and dashed far up the towering rock. And this is a great description, very poetic. Almost Mm. everyone on the ship comes up to take a look. Martin is delighted because he can see the Pacific. Jack tells him that some people call it the Great South Sea until you get back north of the 40th parallel. At all events, sir, said Martin, what lies beyond is the far side of the world. Another ocean, another hemisphere. What joy! Well, uh, uh, Mike, this this is a Patrick O'Brien book, and nobody can say, ah, what joy our destination is in sight, <laughs> right. with, without incurring some kind of some kind of blowback from the authorial hand of fate here. Right. Well. You know, Stephen's wondering why everybody is just working so hard to be sure that they round the horn today. And Jack explains that the weather right here could change at any moment. And if they get a southwest wind or a strong west wind, that can really bar their way getting around the horn. And sure enough, you know, almost as they're talking about it, the wind dies and the southwest wind starts at the beginning of the graveyard watch. Hmm, how's that for ominous, right? What watch is that? The Graveyard Watch. And it continues for weeks, for three days. Jack tries to continue heading west. Uh, and, he, and he keeps getting down, down into the frozen 60s. He's risking icebergs and ice on the ropes and decks and sails. But it only gets worse. And the full west wind now strengthens. And there's enormous rollers sweeping eastward. So they've got the wind. They've got the waves pushing them back. These you know, They're really having a tough time of it. And sometimes they could only lie still. I mean, you know, and, and you know, lying still, actually, they're moving backwards. And they lose this enormous distance. They're pitching violently. Um, and one of these times... Uh, Matron is is trying to head back downstairs, and the bosun's cat is on the stairs. and And Stephen's a little irritated at how presumptuous this cat is, and is taking a big high step over it as the boat lurches. He falls down into the hold and is almost killed. Uh, luckily, they kind of opened up a grating. He lands on these coals that are about to be brought up, but he's in pretty beat up, bruised up shape here. At this point. You know, things get really tough upstairs. Yes. So we read that uh, the two watches have already attempted to gather in the fore and main topsails. They, the rigging starts to break down. The clue lines and the bunt lines have parted. The sails split at their seams, which is a must be a pretty deafening thing to, to witness. The masthead, we learn, might have gone if Mowat and the bosun and Bonden and Wally, captain of the main top, had not gone aloft laid out on the ice-covered yard and cut the sail away. And Mike, the, the William Worley is, is 
is a character in the movie as well. And he has a similar escapade to what we're about to hear about, although in a different context. Wally is aloft and he's working away to cut away these uh, these ragged sails and he falls into the sea. And we lose more sails until the crew working in waist deep water manages to secure everything and they can start repairing the rigging and carrying injured shipmates below. And this tragic accident to Wally is echoed in the movie. Mm. So they're going to lose some men. Um, some men are going to lose limbs. Jack is losing some nails as they have this really intense physical fight with the weather and with the storm. They've made some progress, but these men are always wet and always cold. Scurvy is starting to set in. Spirits are low in general. And Jack, the keeper of high spirits aboard, is always either on deck or dead asleep. All of the private stores have been eaten or destroyed. No more cheese. Um, Stephen missed his evenings and dinners with Jack and is in pain and still on the defensive about Diana. He's filled with premonitions, ill dreams, and foreboding. And he was trying to trying to compensate for this with laudanum by night and coca leaves during the day. Stephen, you know, is spending a great deal of time with Mrs. Horner. Uh, at first, because he needed to, um, he really had to be caring for her hour by hour. But then he starts to admire her, particularly, you know, her courage and her fortitude. And and he actually starts becoming quite fond of her. And she's confided in him her love for Hollem and tells him about their plans to run off together. And Stephen initially is thinking that this is delirium and he's just kind of saying, oh, you know, he's saying really nice things about it. But now that he realizes that she's quite serious and she's gotten better, you know, he forbids her to speak about it. Uh, but she, knowing that Stephen likes her, just ignores him. And, and Hollem at, at this early stage is very anxious. He's really working at trying to learn how she is. The youngsters realize they see this. So they're always asking Stephen and relaying it to Hollem. Hollem finally is, is kind of, um, you know, approaching Stephen directly, kind of almost faking illness to get to see Stephen and then ask. And, and, and this, you know, is making Stephen a little bit mad himself. And he's, he's giving him some of his concoctions that will make Hollem not feel very well for having come in and feigned illness here. But as, as this is going on, the surprise is slowly starting to move more west and north and the waters are getting better. Uh, Mrs. Oh. Horner's youth asserts itself as Stephen hoped that it would. And Hollum, who apparently had now has some you know, direct means of communication, some way other than through Stephen to find out about her condition, is growing more cheerful, is heard singing once again and playing Honey's guitar. And in the midst of this, the gunners on deck one day uh, grabs a harpoon and kills a seal, brings him on board. And Stephen cuts up his liver for the scurvy patients that he has, because this could be really helpful for him. And as he's distributing it to all of them, you know, he saves a couple of pieces for Mrs. Horner. But when he goes, you know, kind of not at his usual time to visit her and present these, he walks in on Hollem kissing her. And, and Stephen is really upset. He throws Hollem out. He gives her the liver pieces and says, eat those, and then marches outside with Hollem, you know, saying, you know, basically, yeah. you, know, you can take any risk you want to, but you can't endanger my patients, and I'm going to report this to the captain. And he sees Hollem's eyes get kind of really big, very scary look on his face as Hollem looks over Stephen's back. And Stephen turns to realize that Jack has stepped in at the gangway right behind him here and saying, you know, report what to the captain? And Stephen's already kind of heard the jealousy and righteous indignation in his voice. And he realizes that, you know, a lot of his anger towards Hollem is really his condemnation of himself. And so uh, he, he turns around, you know, looking at Jack and he says, well, I, I would tell you that Mrs. Horner is far better. And, and Jack says he's very glad. And, you know, I'm trying to find you to tell everybody that, you know, uh, we're making good progress, and we're at least soon going to have warm and dry beds for everybody. Huh. Yeah, good, good save there, I think, by Stephen, and a good example of a bit of, a bit of self knowledge, a bit of yeah. self awareness, and maybe, maybe we're going to start to move on to a different step in the story now, because Stephen gets to go find his cello. I don't think he's played his cello for a while in all this weather, 
Um, O'Brien writes, in the cabin, as Stephen slowly tuned his cello, thinking, it was common jealousy, I make no doubt. Disapproval, too. The fellow's not worth her. A poor groatsworth of a man, vox et praeterea nihil, although a very fine vox. But sure, men in general are very rarely worth their women. And this, this little tag, vox et praeterea nihil, means a voice and nothing more. It's from the Moralia by Plutarch, Sayings of the Spartans, a story about a nightingale having no meat on it. It's a voice, this bird, and nothing more. Uh, and it's used as a, uh, a way of talking about people who talk a lot and have nothing to say. But Stephen points out, Holland's voice is very fine anyway, a very fine vox. <laughs> and then O'Brien wraps up the chapter for us by turning to Jack's perspective. Jack says, I did not like to raise their hopes too much, but if this goes on, and by all accounts I have read it is very likely to go on, we should raise Juan Fernandez in a fortnight. It's been a slow, rough passage, I admit, but it is not impossible that the Norfolk may have had it slower and rougher still. It is not impossible, he said, trying to convince himself, that we may still find her lying there, refreshing her people and taking her ease. So, Mike, I, I wonder if Jack's premonitions are true. I wonder if Mrs. Horner's recovery is going to continue. I wonder whether Hollam is going to find a way to be a bit more circumspect in his pursuit of this relationship that still carries on between him and the gunner's wife. And I wonder how Stephen's going to get on wrangling in his mind over the relationship with Diana. And these are great questions. I, I think the only way we're going to find out is to page ahead to chapter six next week. What would you think of a little bit more Patrick O'Brien next week? Oh, Mike, I should like it of all things.